You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. Well, my goodness. We've done one of the longest books in the Bible, and we've done so, some of you, how many of you have been here for 22 weeks of it? Okay, great. So most of us have done the entire book. Those of you who didn't do the entire book got to go through probably the the diciest portions of it with us uh, in this second semester. I hope that you are feeling a sense of accomplishment in having just sustained the study of a book like this over a period of time. It's one of those times, which is often the case with an Old Testament historical narrative, where we don't necessarily get to have a, a fade out at the end where we all feel really good about where the story ended. In fact, if you're sort of hanging in the tension at the end of this book and thinking, well, we didn't really tie up a lot of these loose ends, I would urge you over your time this summer to take some time to read First and Second Kings and see if you can't see what happens to some of the people like um, Joab, that, that dirty dealing um, <laughs> gut slasher. <laughs> Where does that go? That would be an interesting, I hope that you have natural curiosity about that. Or David, what's going to happen with David? How do we get to Solomon from here? What I hope you have been given during this study is an important piece of history that will help you understand the rest of the Bible better than you did before. Uh, So often we have heard the stories of David's life as little snapshots. And what we had the opportunity to do here is see how they happen in a particular order and how they're told in a particular way. And so there were some tools that I hope you were paying attention to that you were gaining, hopefully, this semester. And that is looking for repeated rhythms in the way that stories are told. Uh, Why is the story of Saul told this way and then the story of David told similarly? Um, Why do we have uh, that structure at the beginning with the Hannah's song and then a similar closing thing at the end of the book? One of the things that I always want students of the Bible to develop an appreciation for and an eye for is how much artistry and care has gone into the construction of what we are reading. I think we sometimes think that it is just a bunch of different ideas that have all been sort of piled into a book, and it is not that at all. Each book has a lot of structure to it, and then each of those books is placed uh, in your Bible in a particular order for a particular reason, and uh, everyone who has written one of the books of the Bible did so certainly under the inspiration of the Spirit, but did what you and I would do anytime we're telling a story. They chose certain things to talk about, and they chose other certain things to pass over. And so I'm I'm praying as we go through books like this that you are developing a heightened sense of asking, why was this included versus something else? How does this whole story change if this particular anecdote is left out of the story. So those are just some skills that I hope that you've been developing to be able to look for themes. One of the key tools that I hope you will take away from this study in particular is the idea of trusting the narrator. Remember we've talked about that several times, that when the narrator reports that something happened and then a character reports something different than what the narrator said, we always look to what the narrator said as the authoritative voice. 
Another skill that I hope that you were paying attention to through the course of the study in developing is looking for when we're seeing mentions of God acting in the story and when we see those drop out of the story because that's communicating to us not an absence of God's action but God acting in a different way than when we are hearing about it in the text. And It's usually a sign that we're going to see exactly how humans are, are, are doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. So it turns our focus on the human agents and how they are usually serving their own ends. So that's another really important thing to take from this. We were also obviously looking for how David was pointing us toward a greater reality, uh, how he was pointing us toward uh, the reality of the king who was prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, the one who would reign on the throne of David forever. And if you do take this summer to read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, what you're going to find is that every king that comes to the throne after David is an opportunity for us to say, just as we've had to do even with David's kingship, this is not Messiah. This is not Messiah. This is not Messiah. Over and over and over again. If we had written the book of Samuel, it would end differently. And the book of Samuel is a compelling witness that the Bible can be trusted because it tells the truth about human nature. There have been, as we have talked about at various points during the semester and last semester, there have been many attempts through the years to turn David into a superhero, the man after God's own heart. That phrase is repeated over and over again by commentators who are just really wanting to salvage this king on the throne for us. And yet, as we've seen again and again, we saw Saul was the man of the people's choosing and David was the man of God's choosing. And what was the distinguishing factor between Saul and David? Was it that Saul was unrighteous and David was righteous? No, it was that none is righteous. No, not one. But David has the indwelling spirit, and when he sins, he repents. So there's a model there for you and me to follow. We, as the people of God's choosing, cannot look down on the sinner next to us and say, you're the one who's really in need of grace but instead say, we're all in need of grace. The difference between me and the pagan is that I know it and the pagan doesn't. And there's a responsibility associated with that. It means that when confronted with my sin, I repent. And what does the Lord do? The Lord forgives. But the story of David is faithful to show us too that the Lord's forgiveness is certainly full and freely given, but he allows the discipline of natural consequences to play out. Sometimes in ways that we would say are more costly than was merited. Like we look at what happened in David's household and we say, doesn't that seem a little beyond what David did? And what that shows in our hearts is that we still cling to the notion that sin is not that bad. Anytime we see a natural consequence that is bringing about a better discipline in the life of a believer, and we say, that just seems like a little bit too much. It's actually revealing in us our lack of understanding, not just about the severity of sin, but about the holiness of God and what it requires. You want the snapshot picture of that, it's probably Uzzah reaching out to steady the ark 
but we saw it elsewhere in the text as well. David is a king who teaches us to have a deep longing for the true and better king. And now that you have spent time in First and Second Samuel, any time you go to the New Testament, you're not going to read it the same way that you did. There are 17 verses in the New Testament that describe Jesus with a particular title. You know what it is? Son of David. Christ is the clear fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of David in Samuel 7, which is why Matthew 1 opens with a genealogy that traces Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, back to David. And the genealogy in Luke 3 traces Jesus' lineage back through his mother Mary to, the, to King David. The message is clear. De- Jesus is a descendant of David by adoption through Joseph and by blood through Mary. For generations, the Israelites had been looking for the son of David. It was a messianic title. It was not simply a reference to his genealogical heritage. It was a sign that fulfillment had occurred. And so then we find in the Gospels that those who are in their deepest need, those who know that apart from God there is no deliverance for them, when they see Jesus approaching, how do they hail him? The blind, the lame, those with family members who are suffering. They say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy mercy on me. They're not just simply referencing his parentage. They're saying, you are Messiah. You are the prophesied one. They are the ones who recognize who Jesus is, and yet it is that specific title that enrages the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees are looking for honor, glory, laud, and honor to be given to them. And so, here we are, heading into Palm Sunday this weekend. And it's a pretty timely place for us to be. I want to read to you Matthew 21. And I want you to just listen to it with your Old Testament ears on. Think of the themes of kingship. Think of the themes of fulfillment. Think of all of the things that we've seen in the life of David. This is Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion... Do you remember how we were introduced to the term Zion in this book? Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from from Nazareth of Galilee. That's what the crowd said. What did those with the palm branches said? This is the king who will reign forever on David's throne. And it is because of this that the scribes and the Pharisees are enraged, and they plot to kill him. He goes to the cross, crowned ironically in thorns and a purple robe. He ascends to his throne, the cross, where he conquers death. He is the king they did not expect. They expected someone who would be like Saul, who would be all about outward appearances and power and authority, and instead they got David dancing before the ark in a most undignified manner. They got what we all get when we're looking for it. They got the upside-down kingdom. Palm Sunday is a time for us to reflect on coming face-to-face with the confession of Jesus as the son of David. If you are concerned with self-promotion like the Pharisees, you will balk at the rule of the king. But if you know your desperate need, you will cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's no accident that in the final pages of the Bible, we find on the lips of Jesus in the prophecy of John this language. Revelation 22, 16. Five verses from the end of the whole book. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The true and better son of David sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling And those who submit to his rule acknowledge their great need for his mercy. They are quick to repent. They are quick to rise up and take on their role in moving forward the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You are the chosen children of God. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for David. Thank you that he is relatable and at the same time that his measure of repentance is something that we can aspire to. Thank you that he points us toward Christ. Teach us to live as those who understand we do not serve a politician We do not serve a pastor, we serve a king, a king who sits enthroned between the cherubim. Help us to be your servants in a way that points all others toward this truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.
I'm going to invite Elizabeth up here, and we're now going to entertain your questions. I have divided them into general categories. We're going to sit, because we're, we're casual like that. Do you guys know what happened the day that I was teaching on David sitting before the ark? I think it was in the evening class that it happened, and I said, and can you believe he sat before the ark, and I plunked myself down up here, and I cracked my phone screen that was in my back pocket. <laughs> so, you know, whatever it takes in ministry, guys. All right, so we have several categories of questions we're going to go through. First, some of these are faster than others. Um, I've given all the hard ones to Elizabeth. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Okay. Number one, category number one, structure of the book. Here's the question that we got. First Samuel begins with a sacrifice and a song, and second Samuel ends with a song and a sacrifice. Is the book of Samuel one giant chiasmus? Where is the middle? I'm guessing the Davidic covenant. My first reaction to this question is, I'm so happy and proud. <laughs> How did you feel about the question? I mean, the fact that they asked that if it yes. one giant, I mean, you just get points for that. I know, you do. You know, and we know who you are, and the Lord knows. Uh, so congratulations on winning our hearts. Um, when you look at the book, I, I appreciate, what I love about the question is someone was really looking for structure. Now, um, it's really fun to go hunting for chiastic structures. I personally love it. It's what I do on holidays and weekends. Uh, and they're, they're those parallel structures that are like an arrow, right? And what she's asking is, is where's the center of the arrow? Because I see this. She was looking for bookends, which is really good. Um, but there are all kinds of parallelism that you can find in Old Testament narratives. And it's probably more accurate to say that in this book, you're seeing bookends. And then you see like a story arc of Saul's life and a story arc of David's life. And there's a lot of parallelism between those two, but they're making a contrast at the same time. You want to add anything to that? No, I actually do think, I think it's the intentionality of the, the design of the book by the author to not necessarily have one big chiasmus, but to have the bookends with the story arcs that we see the rise and fall of both Saul and David. But I love the question. Okay, category number two, David's faith or lack thereof. Would you like to read the question for us? I'm having trouble making sense of David's faith and what the author wants us to know about it. Young David is presented as having flawless faith, and we see very little sin in him. But as he ages, we see a little bit more complexity. We see his sin and repentance, but we also see his blind spots, relationships with women, his kids, and his cuz, Joab. It says his cuz, Joab. We appreciate that. We appreciate that. <laughs> what do you think David's faith was like as a king? Do his blind spots point to decreased faith or love for God? You start. Yay. Um, I think what we see is David's humanity, right? And so I think it's this idea that what distinguishes Saul from David isn't that one is necessarily better than the other. It's how one responds to sin and the other one doesn't respond in a way of repentance. Mm -hmm. And so I think we see moments in which David's faith is vibrant and he's living in right relationship with the Lord. And we see other moments where he's very broken. We see moments where he's walking in sin. And so how do we look at his life and see his trajectory of faith and how he responds to being um, brought aware of his own sinful behavior and the ways in which he isn't loving God. And I think that's what the author wants us to know, that he's human, but he is a model of what we should be is that a repentant people. Yeah, and I think how it's kind of God to show us both David at his best and David at his worst, because if all we get is this uber-positive example of David, 
then we are filled with an idealism that is not helpful. Like, oh, I can just nail this if I just, you know, am obedient to the Lord. But then we also have the opposite side of it, where if all we were given were David's failures, then we would feel hopeless and, and that there was no, no way for the Lord to work grace in our lives. And instead, we're given a balance of it. I think it's also reassuring to see, uh, for those of you who have, have gotten a little further along in your spiritual walk and you're like, I just blew something major again, you know, that the Lord stands ready to grant grace to you and to, to keep you moving, uh, and that that's going to be, it's a, it is an accurate picture of what life is like. Now, albeit, it's amplified, right, in his life, and there is more at stake for David because David is playing a specific role in the redemptive story. So just as we talked about with the story of David and Goliath, we want to see ourselves in David to the extent that it's appropriate for us to. Um, But we also want to understand that what's going on in the life of David is teaching us a bigger truth about the significance of God's promises and his steadfastness to persevere even when we do not. Cool. All right. Now we have a miscellaneous category I've entitled Angels, Arks, and Giants. Uh, Let's start with arks. Uh, It says, we have had several passages this semester and last that focused on the correct care and handling of the ark. I cannot find a reference for what happened to the ark after the destruction of the temple. What do reputable scholars believe? Hard question, so it means it's mine. Well, actually, we know the answer to this. Um, There were a group of Nazis who found the ark. (laughs) One guy's face melted off. You think Uzzah got it bad? Uh, Yeah. What's your answer? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. (laughs) Jesus is the answer. Okay, so I think the idea, just to give those of you who don't um, fully know, kind of understand the question, we see the Ark of the Covenant mentioned in 1 and 2 Samuel. And the last time we hear about it is David brings it into um, Jerusalem. After that, it kind of, we don't hear about it that much at all um, throughout scripture. And then after the destruction of the temple. So when we think about the rest of the Old Testament, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, the major and minor prophets that we don't know how to pronounce. um, It's a story of Israel and Judah um, and the story of good and bad kings and the story of God judging them for their um, sin by sending them into exile. And so a part of that story is the temple that Solomon built, um, David's son being destroyed. And at that point, the Ark of the Covenant kind of falls off the scene. Scholars are all over the place on this. Most will say we just don't know what happened to it. Um, Some say that there are spaces on earth that it still is buried um, that hasn't been confirmed. One theory, and I'm not making this up, is that it's in a cave in Ireland and that's where the pot of gold is at the end of the rainbow. (laughs) Yes, that is sadly true. That is actually true. I I say theory, but yeah. So I'm the, Irish, so I was okay. kind of into that one. Okay. Hit home for you. Yeah. So there, there are kind of theories like that. I think a safe space for us to land is we just don't know. Um, we see the Ark of the Covenant mentioned in Revelation. And so what we see that God um, had a, an image of or an example of here on earth, we will see perfected in heaven. And I think that's where we need to point our eyes to. Yeah, I think it's, it's missing for a reason, the physical ark. And I think it's because the Bible tells us that it was a shadow of a spiritual reality. And so uh, the ark sort of drops off the map at just at the point, whoop, just at the point that um, we're about to enter into a time period in the history of Israel where the presence of God does not return to the temple. 
and the ark symbolizes God's presence. We talked about that all semester long. So there's where, where is the physical ark? We don't know, but why is the physical ark missing? That's actually kind of a more interesting question to me. Okay, uh, we've covered arcs. Let's talk about giants. Uh, where did the giants come from? Are they descendants from Genesis 6-4? Oh, Nephilim, you are always with us. Um, Elizabeth, you had a great answer to this when we were going over these things. What did you say? Genesis, that's a trend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just want to say, I feel like it's just genetics. Right? They're just big guys, guys. And so if you think about different periods of history, I think in all seriousness, people have had different heights based upon um, who marries each other geographically. And so I think for us, there is a standard height today in our culture that is actually taller than it has been before. I think it's all of that's part of that conversation. I think the guys were just tall and that was normal for that period of time. I think it falls down to genetics. I love it, that's a great answer. Okay, uh, we've covered giants and arcs, let's cover angels. Will you expand on the theme of the angel of the Lord being used to enact the pestilence on the land? Uh, so the question was, is David capable of visualizing the spiritual realm? Are believers capable of this today? Okay, so uh, I don't know that we're going to wrap up the second part of that question, um, but I would say that anytime you hear mention of the angel of the Lord, um, you should not picture an angel. It means to, to communicate that God has appeared in some way that was perceptible to human senses. So um, the visitation of Abraham in Genesis by the three men uh, is the angel of the Lord. Uh, and when you see the angel of the Lord appear elsewhere, it's a way of saying that there was a theophany, there was a, an appearance of God um, in some sort of human form. So you should just, you should just read God there. That would be the best way that I could, could think to describe that. Um, can people see angels? Uh, I'm personally going to go with no. Do you have an opinion on that? Hey, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, this is just honestly, I think um, that, do I think it's possible that God can make that happen? Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> yes, I agree that I it's do, possible. But I think a space of, let's just, to, to space of, being careful and wisdom mm -hmm. in how we interact with that. So the possibility of what God can do versus just being careful and wise with how we interact. Well, and there's a difference between saying something is possible and something is normative. And so what often happens is someone will latch onto an idea like this and just decide this is the way that things are supposed to happen all the time. And, and so that I think is what, we, if, as long as you know kind of where the ditches are on either side of this conversation, like to say, no, that can never happen, sort of like I said at the beginning of this question, uh, or say, oh yeah, that's every day I see angels watching over me, angels watching over me. Uh, so yeah, just be, be aware not to lean too far one way or the other. Okay, uh, on to the next category. See, you love when we sing. Uh, study habits and commentaries. Oh, I loved this. Study habits and commentaries. Okay. Number one, what commentaries do you typically reference when preparing for your teaching time? I use Teaching the Text series by Robert Chisholm. Um, I think it depends which book of the Bible it is. So there are whole books, yes. commentaries, where they will go from Genesis to Revelation, and then there are ones that are specialized for books. Um, and so what I always tell people, because the ones that are specialized just for books usually are more expensive and maybe harder to access, and whole Bible commentaries are sometimes a little easier. 
I am a Dallas Theological Seminary grad, and so that means I use the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I also use, uh, it's a free one, Sonic Light by Dr. Tom Comstable. It's online. Every book of the Bible, it's free. Um, there are a lot of the other free ones online that are actually good, have been around for a long time, but those are kind of my go-to all the time. Um, no matter what book of the Bible is, I think for First and Second Samuel, it was teaching the text by Robert Chisholm. Um, and then we used Tim Chester, we used uh, Dale Davis, um, and we used, um, I use I used John MacArthur a little bit in these studies, um, sometimes more than others, depending on what, what the passage is dealing with. Yeah. Hey, we're running short on time, so I'm going to keep it moving. We're going to answer this one, and then I'm going to give you your fun one. Yeah, okay. super fun. Okay. Uh, next in category number four, regarding your personal Bible study unrelated to preparation for teaching, um, how do you study the Bible? So the question is, how am I studying when I'm not studying for the class, right? Uh, my answer is, that is my study. I do not distinguish between some separate category of my personal study and my teaching in here. If you want to know just how undisciplined I am, the level of accountability I require to stay in the Bible on a regular basis is this. (laughs) And so um, I think what people, when they're asking that question, what they're really asking is, what does your devotional time look like? Uh, And I always like to say that for me, preparing to teach is deeply devotional. Uh, I think you can tell that when we're teaching. It is deeply moving to me to be in these stories, and so I'm not looking for a separate category of time for that. I think for me, when it comes to studying the Word for my job, one thing I have to guard against is me being overly analytical for everything. And so one habit that's just really helped me is just memorizing Scripture. Um, and so going through, and I use the same techniques I would use to even prep um, a teaching here, but I just take it in really small chunks. Mm-hmm. And that just helps me make sure that I'm not always focusing on the structure and the context and all these things and missing what the text has to say. Um, and I can easily do that. And so just because of what I do and, and trying to guard against that, because I want to be as transformed and changed by the word as I hope you guys are. And so memorizing scripture has been helpful for me. All right. Our last category will be category number six. Death slash innocent lives. That's the only intro. We're going to leave you on a high note, guys. Do you like how I, I could have probably ordered those differently in retrospect, but too okay. late. Um, there are actually a couple of different questions that revolved around the same theme, and that's why does God take innocent lives? Um, we see a lot of death and destruction in First and Second Samuel, and that can be really unsettling to us. And so what I want to first say is that this is a really, this isn't an easy question to answer. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are feeling unsettled and saying, man, this doesn't seem to be the God that I know, that that's real. And I want to validate that, um, that we will see some things in scripture that sometimes it makes us pull back a little bit about who we might believe God to be. And in those instances, I want us give it, to give us things to consider. And one of those is the character of God. We have to trust that God is who he says he is, even sometimes when it doesn't seem like that. Um, And when we think about the character of God, all those attributes you have in the back of your workbook, he is all the time at the same time. And so God is loving and just. Um, God is a God of righteousness. He is also good. All those things happen at the same time. So when we see something, it doesn't mean, okay, God is acting in his justice now, but he's not loving. They're all at the same time. 
And so I think when we think about this idea of the people that we see, specifically in last week's teaching, um, in 2 Samuel 24, of the people who die, is this, this question of innocence and guilt. Um, and it's the idea um, of individual responsibility versus corporate responsibility. Um, specifically with Saul, because this is one of the questions that was asked, why is David punished or receives consequences for what Saul did to the Gibeonites? And we need to recognize that in a different culture, it's this idea of honor and shame. Um, and so what happened, Saul's actions brought shame on the entire nation of Israel. So it wasn't just Saul that was responsible, it was a nation of Israel that was responsible. And they were responsible before God. And so they had to be able to satisfy um, the punishment that was required for Israel's sin. And so when we think about the men who die specifically, um, and this is really, this is hard to sit in, in the eyes of the Lord, they would not have been innocent. Um, and that, I don't say that flippantly, um, but it's this idea that there had to be a price paid um, for the sin that was committed. And in that culture, those men being brought forward as a sacrifice for those sins, that would have been acceptable. Again, because the whole nation is seen as guilty and the whole nation has to um, be able to satisfy the, what God says is the punishment for those sins. And so I think that brings another question, why is the punishment death? And, and Jen mentioned it um, when she was giving her review. It's this idea that sometimes we think that sin is not that bad, that we see requirements um, that fall to the holiness of God. Um, it's this idea, does God not mourn death? Does God, it's not God sorrowful? Um, I think he is. And I think it's the idea that he holds such a high value for his holiness, um, that the severity of the punishment has to match the severity of the crime. And again, I think that that pushes us back to who he is and his character, what it means to stand in accordance to his moral law, um, that he's holy and that that's what he's gonna uphold is his glory. That's not easy for us to sit in, for us to understand. And I think what we need to see is that God is who he says he is all the time. Um, and that his justice many times requires severe punishment. And it does for us. The only reason that we don't experience death is because of God's mercy through Jesus Christ. Um, and so that also shows us how merciful and gracious our God is to offer salvation for us for what we as a people because of sin um, should have to receive. Yeah, one of the things that is important, another skill that you should take away from having done this study is giving yourself permission to ask the question that you're scared you shouldn't ask. So asking the question, is God someone who takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, is one of those questions that, like, who's going to bring that up in a small group, right? Because it feels forbidden, because it's, it's questioning the character of God. Those questions have to be asked at some point in your faith, or your faith is held very loosely. And so the, the purpose of, of being in a study like this is to create space to face those things. But what I don't want you to think is that we bring it up, and then you immediately feel the resolution of that tension. It may take years for you to process through a question like that, and that's okay. But also, what you need to know is that you will not ask a soul-sucking question 
that has not been asked by believers before and has not been thought about well by other believers. And so in that moment of panic where you think, maybe I have found the fault line in, in, in this whole belief system that no one else has found, that is not truth. It has been thought about and written about, and, and we always want to help point you toward resources that can help you with things like that. So in this case, there's a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Who's it written by? Well, you can find it. And then um, also, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Oh, yeah, and that talks a lot about innocence and guilt in our mm -hmm. culture versus honor and shame. Mm -hmm. And that's another helpful one for you to read, too. But as you are in process with trying to find how to, um, to recalibrate your your thinking around these things, there are always things you can take away in the short term, right? And it's, man, sin was worse than I thought. And any wastefulness or death that we see in the Old Testament should help us to understand in a new way what was happening at the cross on our behalf. So in the short term, we can always focus our attention there. All right, well, that was a low ending to a rocky semester, guys, so way to go. Let me close us in prayer, and I just want to say congratulations. This is good work, and I think you will, be, you will begin to see um, the harvest of it, not maybe perhaps in the short term, but every time you go to the New Testament now, just be aware of your heightened awareness of, of how these stories are being brought to mind for you in a way that pulls together the whole story of the Bible. Let me pray for us, and then I have some instructions for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of Samuel. Thank you for its faithful characters. Thank you for its unfaithful characters. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to be your people in a way that Israel was not. Teach us to worship the king in a way that Israel could not. Um, and teach us, Father, to live in gratitude that Christ has come and fulfilled everything that David was, everything that David was not, and everything that we could need him to be. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.